Hurry, hurry, hurry to Monday matinee on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that all children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. And welcome to Sonic Society Season 12, Episode 510. I'm your host on The Stand, Jack Ward. And I'm your host in the bleachers, David Alt. Uh, Jack, is this another hint to this week's show? Always, David. Tonight <laughs> we have Part 1 of the exciting stage performance 8, based on the groundbreaking legislation Proposition 8 from the Marriage Equality Act in the United States. Originally starring George Clooney and Brad Pitt and others, but tonight you've got a role. Indeed, I was thrilled and took about 0.07 seconds to say yes to this when Mark Brzee approached me. But we've got a full show, so on with it with... Eight, adapted from the stage play and presented as a co-production from Mark Brzee's Leap Audio and Pete Lutz with Narada Radio Theatre, right here on the Sonic Society. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. Leap Audio and the Narada Radio Company present Eight, a play by Dustin Lance Black. And here are your hosts, Mark Bruzy and Pete Lutz. In May 2009, the American Foundation for Equal Rights filed a lawsuit, Perry v. Schwarzenegger, in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California on behalf of plaintiffs, two same-sex couples, to challenge a voter-approved constitutional amendment known as Proposition 8 that eliminated same-sex couples' rights to marry. The same-sex couples were represented by David Boies and former U.S. Solicitor General Theodore Olson, two high-profile attorneys who opposed each other in the U.S. Supreme Court case Bush v. Gore. During the trial, the plaintiffs presented expert witnesses of which nine the court found, quote, were amply qualified to offer opinion testimony on the subjects identified, end quote, and, quoting again, offered credible opinion testimony on the subjects identified, end of quote. The defense for Proposition 8 presented only two expert witnesses who were willing to testify under oath. The most important one, David Blankenhorn, was ultimately judged as lacking, quote, the qualifications to offer opinion testimony, unquote. Blankenhorn, the witness against gay marriage, during cross-examination, admitted to and identified 23 benefits of adopting same-sex marriage, published in his book, The Future of Marriage. These benefits included the happiness and well-being of gays, lesbians, their children, and family members, an increase in the proportion of gays and lesbians in stable, committed relationships, a higher living standard for same-sex couples, fewer children growing up in state institutions, and more growing up in loving adoptive and foster families, a decrease in the amount of anti-gay prejudice and hate crimes, and a decrease in the number of those warily viewed as other in society and therefore furthering the American ideal of equality. 
Opponents of same-sex marriage were unable to provide credible evidence proving their claim that same-sex marriage would harm society or the institution of marriage. On August 4, 2010, Chief District Court Judge Vaughn Walker ruled that the Proposition 8 ban on same-sex marriage violated the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution and that there was no legitimate reason to deny same-sex couples the fundamental right of marriage. And now, 8, by Dustin Lance Black. We'll be back after this message. Mom, guess what I learned in school today? What, sweetie? I learned how a prince married a prince, and I can marry a princess. Think it can happen? It's already happened. When Massachusetts legalized gay marriage, schools began teaching second graders that boys can marry boys. The courts ruled parents had no right to object. Under California law, public schools instruct kids about marriage. Teaching children about gay marriage will happen here unless we pass Proposition 8. Yes on 8. Chris and Sandy one night after work had us sit down in the family room, which they never do. So of course, we knew something terrible was going to happen, or something really fun. So we sat down and Chris was like, I was approached and asked if I wanted to be a part of this case. And I'm, okay, what case? And she says it was whether or not to see if Proposition 8 was unconstitutional or not. But I would have soccer practice and soccer games throughout the entire week. Then also be playing club soccer. So basically, I would have to miss a lot of that. You know, you associate the word activism with people who, you know, signs. Not extremists, but people who... When I think of Chris and Sandy, I think of people who... Not humble, but, you know, people that don't want to force their views on people. I mean, we thought our parents were married. Yeah. That's how they explain it to us. So when we think of marriage, we think of Chris and Sandy. We think of our parents. But I know for a fact that there's a lot of kids in my school who don't see them as married. So what do we expect? I mean, I've never been in a courtroom where my parents are testifying against their own government. Uh, I honestly can't tell you, because I think they might be shattered with what's going to happen. Calling civil case 09-2292, Kristen Perry et al. versus Arnold Schwarzenegger et al. Appearances, counsel, please. All rise. On election day 2008, Californians voted in favor of Proposition 8, thus rewriting the California state constitution to add a ban on marriage for gay and lesbian citizens who were already enjoying that right. 
Well, now two lawyers most famous for representing opposing sides of Bush v. Gore have teamed up to take Proposition 8 to federal court. Good morning, Your Honor. Theodore B. Olson on behalf of the plaintiff. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. David Boyce on behalf of the plaintiff. Chief Judge Vaughn Walker, a Republican appointee, agreed with Mr. Boyce and Mr. Olson that the case could be broadcast. But the defendants, the opponents of gay marriage, turned to Charles Cooper. Good morning, Mr. Chief Judge. Charles Cooper for the defendant intervenors. Mr. Cooper filed an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court, which was successful, and the Supreme Court blocked plans to broadcast the trial. And thus, the nation was denied access to the testimony of plaintiffs Jeff Cirillo and Paul Katami and Sandy Steer and Chris Perry. But the transcripts of this trial could not be hidden. And on June 16, 2010, the closing arguments of this historic case commenced. These are the words, the witnesses, the testimony, and the trial the defenders of Proposition 8 have fought so hard to keep from public view. Mom. Mom. Right here. Did you get through security okay? Yeah, obviously. They took us in the back way, around all the press. Did you talk to any of the cameras? Yeah. And? I just said, this case is about us as Americans wanting to be treated equally by our government. And, under the law, we are going into court today with that simple request. You did it like that? What's wrong with that? I mean, you seem really nervous. Come on, cell phone's off. Come on, let's go find our seats. Wait, will we be done in time for soccer practice? I'm not sure. Come on, let's go. Let's go. What do you mean you're not sure? Who knew we were going to have to go through an actual trial, Elliot? I mean, who knows what we're going to have to do today, because personally, I have never sued Arnold Schwarzenegger before. Now move it. Obviously, the hiatus that we've had is not anything that I would have hoped for, but it may be appropriate that the case is coming to a closing argument now. June is, after all, the month for weddings, so I would simply propose that we get right to business. Mr. Olson, are you leading off for the plaintiff? I am, Your Honor. May it please the court. We conclude this trial, Your Honor, where it began. This case is about marriage and equality. The fundamental constitutional right to marry has been taken away from the plaintiffs and tens of thousands of similarly situated Californians. This state has rewritten its constitution in order to place them into a special disfavored category where their most intimate personal relationships are not valid, not recognized, and second-rate. I am going to, with your permission, Your Honor, play some excerpts from the testimony of the plaintiffs. Raise your right hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Would you tell us briefly about your background? I was born in Illinois, but my parents moved here with me when I was two years old. Well, I grew up on a farm in southern Iowa, going to public schools. I am the executive director of a statewide agency that provides services and support to families with children zero to five. Now, today you are in a committed relationship with another gay man, correct? I have found someone that I know I can dedicate the rest of my life to. And when you find someone who is not only your best friend, but your best advocate and supporter in life, it's a natural next step for me to want to marry that person. 
March will be nine years. Sandy and I live together in Berkeley with our children. We each bring two biological children to our family and each other. Our two younger sons are in high school. I remember the first time I met Sandy, thinking she was maybe the sparkliest person I ever met. And our friendship became deeper and deeper over time. And then, after a few years, I began to feel that I might be falling in love with her. And how did she feel about you? Well, she told me that she loved me, too. We will be asking her to verify that. <laughs> okay. It's always been an awkward situation at the front desk of a hotel. The individual working the desk will look at us perplexed. You ordered a king-size bed? Is that really what you want? It's certainly an awkward situation, walking to the bank and asking, saying, my partner and I want to open a joint bank account and, and hearing, you know, a business account? An LLC or an S corporation? No, not my business partner, my partner. Being able to call him my husband is so definitive. It's something that everyone understands. I'm a 45-year-old woman, and I've been in love with a woman for 10 years. And I don't have a word to tell anybody about that. Unless you have to go through that constant validation of self, there's no way to really describe how it feels. I love Jeff more than myself. And being excluded in that way is so incredibly harmful to me. Opponents of Prop 8 said gay marriage has nothing to do with schools. Then a public school took first graders to a lesbian wedding, calling it a teachable moment. Now this politician says schools aren't required to teach about marriage. Yet his official website confirms teaching marriage is required in 96% of schools. And a leading Prop 8 opponent has warned parents cannot remove children from this instruction. Unless we vote yes on Proposition 8, children will be taught about gay marriage. Whether you like it or not, Your Honor, the words they put into the hands of California voters focused heavily on protect our children. Protect our children from somehow learning that gay marriage is okay, that there is something wrong, sinister, or unusual about gays, and that their relationships are not okay and decidedly not suitable for children. For obvious reasons, however, the gays are not okay message was largely abandoned during this trial in favor of procreation and deinstitutionalization themes. And I submit that the overwhelming evidence of this case proves that allowing persons to marry someone of the same sex will not, in the slightest, deter heterosexuals from marrying or from having babies. Well, they have identified a difference between opposite-sex and same-sex couples in that opposite-sex couples can procreate without the intervention of some third party. Why is that difference not one that the voters could rationally take into account? Your Honor, you would have to make some statement that allowing these other individuals to engage in the institution of marriage will somehow stop that procreation or stop people from getting married or cause them to get divorced. If we had time, Your Honor, I could not present a more compelling closing argument than simply replaying the testimony in its entirety of the four plaintiffs. But we have so much more. There are eight experts, Your Honor, persons who have studied and written about American history, marriage, psychology, 
sociology, economics, and political science. Professor Cott, for example, an expert in marriage. Marriage, the ability to marry, to say, I do, is a basic civil right. It expresses the right of a person to have the liberty to consent validly. And this can be seen very strikingly in American history through the fact that slaves lack that very basic liberty of a person to say, I do, with the force that I do has to have. And what happened when slaves were emancipated? Well, when slaves were emancipated, they flocked to get married. It was said by an ex-slave who had also been a Union soldier. The marriage covenant is the foundation of all of our rights, meaning that it was the most everyday exhibit of the fact that he was a free person. No further questions, Your Honor. Mr. Cooper, you may cross-examine. In the 19th century, many Americans engaged in informal marriages, correct? That is true. And pregnancy or childbirth was the signal for a couple to consider themselves married, correct? Well, not always. Sometimes. Well, let's look at Public Vows, your book, which has been admitted. Page 31. Uh, page 31, you said. Hmm. It reads, in part, Marriage frequently followed upon a sexual relationship between a man and a woman proving fruitful rather than preceding it. Pregnancy or childbirth was the signal for a couple to consider themselves married. You believed that when you wrote these words, didn't you? Well, yes, but as I said, frequently, not always. And you provided a statement to the Vermont legislature when it was considering same-sex marriage? Not to the legislature, to their joint judiciary committee. I see. And when you provided that statement in Vermont... The law that resulted was a compromise which gave something to the Catholics and other conservative groups and something to the LGBT community, correct? It did state in its first line, marriage is between a man and a woman. And then it went on to grant a civil union arrangement that gave all the rights and benefits to same-sex couples. Yes. Your Honor, we have no further questions. Thank you, Professor. A civil union? A domestic partnership would relegate me to the level of a second-class citizenship, maybe even third-class citizenship. It doesn't give due respect to the relationship that we've had for almost nine years. Only a marriage could do that. Husband is definitive. It's something that everyone understands. There's no subtlety to it. It is absolute, and it comes with the understanding that your relationship is not temporal. It's not new. It's not something that could fade easily. We would love to have a family, but the timeline for us has always been marriage first because it solidifies the relationship. And we gain access to that language that is global where it won't affect our children in the future. They won't have to say, my dad and dad are domestic partners. Because truth is, not everyone knows what a domestic partnership is. We want our children to be protected from any awkwardness like that. We want to focus on raising our kids. I think it's quite clear that young children do not aspire to be domestic partners. Uh, <laughs> for young people, and certainly for people later on, marriage is a desirable and respected type of goal that, if you attain it, it's something that gives you pride and respect. Dr. Mayor, 
As one of the leading experts on stigma and discrimination, do you have an opinion as to whether domestic partnerships enjoy similar symbolic and social meaning? In my mind, Proposition 8 in its social meaning sends a message that gay relationships are not to be respected, that they are of secondary value, if any value at all, and that they are, are certainly not equal to those of heterosexuals. And to me, that's, in addition to not allowing gay people to marry, it also sends a strong message about the values of the state and, in this case, the Constitution itself. Are you aware that same-sex marriage has been legal since 2004 in Massachusetts? Yes. Do LGBT individuals suffer from a lower prevalence of mental health disorders in Massachusetts than in California? Well, the first answer is I, I don't really know. But that's not how... Um, I, I wouldn't expect it exactly in that way that you are suggesting that that would be the test of that. Because... Massachusetts is not an isolate of the United States, and certainly I would think that people in Massachusetts who are gay would feel more supported and welcome, so to speak. But your answer is, you don't know, correct? Well, I, I don't—I I don't have the data on that. You don't have data? No, right. Okay, okay. Do LGB individuals suffer from a lower prevalence of mood, anxiety, and substance use problems in Massachusetts than in California? Again, I don't know of a study that compared California to Massachusetts on any of those outcomes. Okay, okay. And I was planning to ask you about the other outcomes, but the answer would be the same, right? Right. No further questions, Your Honor. us today from New York and Virginia, we have Evan Wolfson, whose work is focused on winning marriage equality, and Maggie Gallagher, who is president of the National Organization for Marriage. Now, Mrs. Gallagher, is it correct that you believe... Here's the bottom line. Not only do the majority of people, but the majority of courts have recognized that gay marriage is not a civil right. The majority of people believe that it is a civil wrong. Same-sex unions are not marriages. And yes, you have the right to live as you choose. You may even need some benefits or protections. May even? But you do not have the right to redefine marriage. Yeah, but see, we're not redefining marriage. You are, Evan. You have to be in reality. Please don't interrupt. For a majority of Americans, you are redefining marriage. The same groups that funnel their money through Maggie Gallagher's organization are opposed to partnerships and civil unions and every other level of respect. Maggie, is it true that you oppose civil unions as well? The National Organization for Marriage does not take a direct issue on civil unions. However, we would if it were interfering right. with... And what I said was that the same funders who are funneling their money through this organization are opposed to partnerships and every other measure of respect. And Evan, the national organization... I, I have fought for the marriage issue for 25 years, Evan, because I believe the ideal for a child is a married mother and father. Marriage is not a relationship invented by the government. Marriage is a social institution with deep roots in nature. Listen, Mrs. Gallagher, you're entitled to believe whatever you want. What I said is that the funders who funnel their you money through... You do not through... believe 
That is not true, Evan. Please stop interrupting. Please. You're under investigation for violating campaign laws in three states, and you know we that. We obey the laws of this country. Then why are you under investigation for flouting those laws? Your Honor, the plaintiffs are in the same position as Mildred Jeter and Richard Loving, who in 1967 had no interest in diluting the institution of marriage. They only wanted to marry the person they loved, the person of their choice, who happened to be a person of a different race. That's all these plaintiffs desire, the right to marry the person they love, the person of their choice who happens to be of the same sex. Well, now, the Supreme Court decided that the issue which we are confronted with here was not ripe for the Supreme Court to weigh in on. That was 1972. What's happened in the 38 years since 1972? The Supreme Court in Lawrence v. Texas reversed Bowers v. Hardwick with a 6-3 to decision, and the majority of that opinion, Justice Kennedy and four other justices, decided that case on the basis of due process. The statute in Lawrence was a criminal statute. Yes. The denial of the right to marriage of same-sex couples doesn't have any criminal sanction. I submit it doesn't make any difference. Our fundamental rights cannot be taken away unless the state has a very, very fundamental, strong, compelling reason to do so and it acts with surgical precision so that it takes no more than the compelling reason justifies. We are talking about a group of individuals who meet every one of the standards for suspect classification. They are a minority. There wasn't any dispute about that. It's an immutable characteristic. The witness said that. I was a very precocious kid, so one day I ended up looking up the word homosexual in the dictionary, something along the lines of a romantic attraction between members of the same sex, and it slowly dawned on me that that's what I was. So given your prior testimony about homosexuals, how did you feel when you realized that you were gay? Well, once I realized what a homosexual was, I was scared by that. I realized that this was bad news for me, so I hid it as far away from everyone as I could. About this time, did you talk to anyone about being gay? When I was in the seventh grade, I remember being taunted about being gay. I was called faggot. I was called a homo, a queer. It was scary going to that building, realizing these kids were taunting me with a word that was so close to the truth. I would go home crying. Did your parents find out that you were gay? When I was 13 years old, my parents discovered my journal. And for the first time, I had admitted to myself that I was gay. And I had actually written those words, and they found that and read it. And, and what happened when they read that journal? They were very upset. They were yelling. I remember my mother looking at me and telling me that I, telling me that I was going to burn in hell. It was shocking. I'd never heard anything like that from my mother. I mean, you don't get much worse than eternal damnation. And what is Narth? NARTH stands for the National Association for Reparative Therapy of Homosexuality. 
It's a reversal therapy organization based in Encino, California. Mm-hmm. And how long were you at NARTH? What ages? 14 to 16. And during that time when you were at NARTH, how was your home life? Um, my mother would tell me that she hated me. Once she told me that she wished she had an abortion instead of a gay son. She told me that she wished I had been born with Down syndrome or that I had been mentally retarded. Who did you meet with at NARTH? I met with Dr. Joseph Nicolosi. Where would you meet with Mr. Nicolosi? I did actually fly out to California to do in-person sessions. I recall Nicolosi saying that, you know, homosexuality is incompatible with what God wants for you, and your parents want you to change, and that this was a bad thing. And were you given any advice on how you were able to suppress your homosexuality in these therapy sessions? I remember it was a general admonishment, but not a specific technique, no. No further questions, Your Honor. Mr. Cooper, you may cross-examine. Mr. Kendall, have you ever lived in the state of California? No, I have not. You've never read a scientific study addressing the concept of sexual orientation. Isn't that true? That is true. And isn't it also true that you have never studied whether a person's sexual orientation can change throughout the course of his or her lifetime? No, I haven't studied it. And nothing involved in this conversion therapy was your decision. It was all your parents' decision. Isn't that true? That is correct. And at some point, you communicated to your parents your objections to the counseling treatment, but your parents compelled you to go against your will? Yes. Your only goal for conversion therapy was to survive the experience. Isn't that true? Absolutely true. You didn't have the goal of changing your sexual orientation. I'm sorry, correction. You didn't have the goal of changing your sexual attraction. Is that correct? That's correct. Indeed, you admit that you did not truly want to reduce your sexual attraction to persons of the same sex. Isn't that true? That's correct. It's my experience that people don't want to go to programs like NARTH. Well, you acknowledged in your deposition, did you not, that some people report to have effective results with this conversion therapy. Isn't that true? Yes. I have no further questions, Your Honor. And, uh, was this therapy successful in that you were able to suppress your homosexuality? Nope. I was just as gay as when I started. Well, you were in conversion therapy. Were you introduced to any people who purported, or were purported to you, to have successfully undergone conversion therapy? I remember during one of the group therapy sessions, Nicolosi trotted out his perfect patient. The guy who had been cured of his homosexuality, and and his name was Kelly. Did meeting Kelly have any impact on your views of conversion therapy? I remember once when Nicolosi stepped out of the room, we were talking amongst ourselves. And Kelly told me that later that night he was going to a gay bar, and that he was just pretending to be cured for the sake of his family. And why did you stop going to reversal therapy? During this whole thing, my life had kind of fallen apart. I didn't have the world that I grew up in, my faith, which was very important to me. My family, which was even more important to me. Everything had just kind of stopped, and I just couldn't take anymore, and I realized at one point that if I didn't stop going, I wasn't going to survive. What did you mean by that? Um, I would have... I would have probably killed myself. We will return to the play after this important message.
If you're an LGBTQ person thinking about suicide, or if someone you know is, you can reach the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. LGTB youth thinking about suicide can reach out to the Trevor Project Lifeline, ages 24 or younger, at 866-488-7386. Your Honor, our submission, obviously, is that sexual orientation is not an immutable trait, that it is, that it is an accident, an accident of birth, which... What do you mean, an accident of birth? An accident of birth in the sense that the term has been used consistently by the Supreme Court to identify the kinds of immutable characteristics that go into the calculus on whether heightened scrutiny should apply. The Ninth Circuit Court in the high-tech gays case said unequivocally sexual orientation is not an immutable characteristic. That is a quote. But perhaps the most vivid evidence was an APA study which indicated that over a 10-year period, for women who identified themselves as homosexuals, some two-thirds of them had experienced a change in their sexual orientation at least once over the course of their lifetime. I had a hard time relating to the concept of being in love when I was married to my husband. I honestly just couldn't relate to people when they said they were in love. I thought they were overstating their feelings, making a big deal out of something. It, it just seemed dramatic. When you grow up in the Midwest in a farming family, there's a pragmatism that's part of the fabric of life. and. I remember as a young girl talking to my mom about love and marriage, and she would say, you know, marriage is more than romantic love. It's more than excitement. It's hard work. And um, in my family, that seemed really true. Um, so I thought that's what I was signing up for when I got married to him. Not that it would be bad, but that it would be hard work. When I first met Chris, I was teaching a computer class and she was a student, but then we ended up being friends and I began to realize that the feelings I had for her were really unique and they were absolutely taking over my thoughts and my entire self. And I grew to realize I had a very strong attraction to her and that I was falling in love with her. And not only were we in love, but we wanted to join our families and both have the kind of life of commitment and stability that we both really appreciated. Because at 47 years old, I have fallen in love one time, and it is with Chris. I have been gay as long as I can remember. I have no attraction, desire, to be with a member of the opposite sex. I have always felt a strong attraction and interest in women, and I've only ever fallen in love with women. I'm 45 years old. I don't think I'm anything other than gay. The American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, the major professional mental health associations have all gone on record affirming that homosexuality is a normal expression of sexuality. Finding, Finding a, a fact, fact number, number 46. 46. Individuals do not generally choose their sexual orientation. 
no credible evidence supports a finding that an individual may, through conscious decision, therapeutic intervention, or any other method, change his or her sexual orientation. Professor Herrick, can you please describe your educational background? Um, yes. I received my doctorate in social psychology, uh, the University of California. My dissertation focused on heterosexuals' attitudes towards lesbians and gay men. And turning to your opinions, Mr. Herrick, what is sexual orientation? Sexual orientation is a term we use to describe an enduring sexual, romantic, or intensely affectional attraction to men, to women, or to both men and women. It's used to refer to an identity or a sense of self that is based on one's enduring patterns of attraction. So is homosexuality considered a mental disorder? Uh, no. There were empirical studies that had been conducted that had failed to support the view of homosexuality as a mental illness. Okay, looking at the study, the, the definition and scope of sexual orientation, it says, we suggest the term sexual preference is misleading, as it assumes conscious or deliberate choice or may trivialize the depth of the psychological process involved. We recommend the term sexual orientation because findings indicate that homosexuals' feelings are a basic part of individual's psyche and are established much earlier than conscious choice would indicate. Do you, do you agree with that? Uh, <clears throat> yes. Yes, I do. But these immutability characteristics, they really are not the important factor, are they, in deciding what the level of scrutiny is? Well, Your Honor, yes. With respect, it is critical. It is. It is a critical element, but it isn't, it isn't more or different. Differently critical than, say, political power. And, Your Honor, under the Supreme Court's test for political powerlessness, we would submit to you, again, that the evidence is overwhelming that gays and lesbians are not politically powerless, notwithstanding Dr. Segura's testimony. Dr. Segura... How have ballot initiatives in this country affected the rights of gay men and lesbians in terms of political power? Well, for starters, I would include in this undocumented aliens, who are a distant second. There is no group who has been targeted by ballot initiatives more than gays and lesbians. The number of ballot initiative contests since the late 1970s is probably at or above 200. Gays and lesbians lose 70% of the contests, and a 100% of the contents, contests over same-sex marriage and adoption. Are gays and lesbians underrepresented in political office in the United States? At last count, only six people have ever served in the House of Representatives who have been openly gay, and only two of those were elected as openly gay. There has never been an openly gay senator or cabinet member or certainly president, and only about 1% of the state's legislatures are gay. So how does the lack of participation or representation in government positions undermine the political power of gay men and lesbians? <clears throat> there are members of the United States Senate who, in public speeches, have compared same-sex marriages to marrying a box turtle. Senator Coburn has gone on record saying that the gay and lesbian agenda is the greatest threat to the freedom in the United States today and a senator from South Carolina said that gays and lesbians shouldn't be allowed to teach in public schools. It's difficult to imagine an elected official saying such a thing about really almost any other citizen group. 
Now, that's not the fringe. That's a United States senator. And as a consequence, it legitimizes some of these deeply hostile beliefs. I don't want to draw people's criticism. In fact, quite the opposite. I would really like people to like me. I would. So since I know I have this trait that I can't change that people don't like, I go to great lengths to have other traits that people will like. So I put a significant amount of time and energy into being, well, likable, so that when discriminatory things happen, maybe I can turn it around. The decision every day to come out or not, at work, at home, at PTA, at music, at soccer, it's, it's exhausting. If, for example, I'm on a plane and somebody comes up and I've saved a seat for Sandy, but she's not there yet, and they say, is that saved? And I say, yes, it's for my partner. And they say, oh, well, then could you please move so I could sit there? Or if we're at a store and people want to know if we're sisters or cousins or friends. And I have to decide every day if I want to come out everywhere I go and take the chance that somebody will have a hostile reaction or just go there and buy the microwave we went there to buy without having to go through all that again. Let me throw in a question here. Assume I agree with you that the state's interest in marriage is essentially procreative. How does permitting same-sex marriages impair or adversely affect that interest? Your Honor, that gets to the fundamental disagreement there. They say that it's not enough for opposite-sex unions to further and advance these vital state interests, that we have to prove that including same-sex unions into the definition of marriage would actually harm these purposes and interests. That is not equal protection construct. I am asking you to tell me how it would harm opposite-sex marriages. All right. All right. Let's play on the same playing field for once, okay? Your Honor, my aunt's... My answer is, I don't know. I, I don't know. Does that mean, does that mean, if this is not determined to be subject to rational basis review, you lose? No, Your Honor. Just haven't figured out how you're going to win on that basis yet? Your Honor, by saying that the state and its electorate are entitled when dealing with radical proposals for change to move with caution... Keep in mind, this same-sex marriage is a very recent innovation. Its implications of a social and cultural nature, uh, not to mention its impact on marriage over time, can't possibly be known. So this is a political question, and the court should abstain? Is that it? Same-sex marriage. Have you really thought about it? What it means when gay marriage conflicts with our religious freedoms. Why it was forced on us by San Francisco judges when gay domestic partners already have the same legal rights. What it means when our children are taught about it in school. Have you thought about what same-sex marriage means? To me? Think about it. Voting yes restores traditional marriage. Yes on Proposition 8. I was in traffic in Los Angeles, and that's like having coffee with someone in the car next to you. 
Udil was sitting next to this person over and over again for miles. And I noticed that this person had a Yes on 8 campaign sticker on their bumper. And I thought, I want to see who this person is. And I pulled up. And I looked over. And I got a very distinctive, what, look back. And I said, I just disagree with your bumper sticker. She said, well, marriage is not for you people anyway. And I thought, God, do I have a gay flag on my car? Like, like, how does she even know I'm gay? And normally, I think I'm pretty good about being able to come back with, you know, something to, to support myself. But I was in shock. And I remember it was a yellow bumper sticker, and it had an image that looked like a parent and child connected because protect the children was a big part of their campaign. But when I think of protecting your children, you protect them from people who will perpetrate crimes against them. You protect yourself from things that can harm you physically, emotionally. And the insinuation that I would be part of that category, that, that my getting married to Jeff is going to harm some child somewhere, it's so damning. It's so angering, because if you put my nieces and nephews on the stand right now, I'd be the cool uncle. And to think that you had to protect someone from me, from Jeff, from our friends, and from our community, there's no recovering from that. And unless you've experienced that moment, regardless of how proud you are, you feel ashamed. It rocks your world. And that's this week's show. Please return next week for the conclusion of eight. For Jack Ward and myself, David Alt, take care of each other and good night from the Sonic Society. The Sonic Society is written and produced weekly by Jack J. Ward and David Alt with original music by Sharon B. at SharonB.com. All features, interviews, and audio drama shorts are owned completely by their originators and provided to the Sonic Society by Creative Commons Licensing. The Society itself originates from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Thanks for listening. This has been an Electric Vicuna production. Chauncey Haworth, Mark Slade, and Lothar Tuppen, the demented minds behind the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour, bring you... Twisted Pulp Magazine. A journey beyond surreality to worlds you never knew or hoped existed. Worlds of the supernatural... Worlds of dark satire. Worlds of nightmarish futures. Twisted Pulp Magazine. If you thought the 21st century was weird enough already, think again. Twisted Pulp Magazine. A step beyond your grandfather's pulp. Available at digitalvaudeville.com. 
That's D-I-G-I-T-A-L-V-A-U-D-E-V-I-L-L-E.com. Music.